life alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone on this microphone with a righteous tone. It's not about who's illest. Come on, my sixth sense is telling me that Christ is more unbreakable than Bruce Willis. We truth dealers, hope you fill us with my true spill is healthier. Lyrical theology, live from Philadelphia. Because of the all right, all right, we are live. What is going on, everybody? Let's get Josh in here. There we Ooh. go. All right, let's get rid of this. <laughs> all right, and there we are. All right, there we are. There's everybody. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Worldview Warriors. I'm Dave Wilson, hanging out as usual with John Jansen That's here, cool. coming live from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And uh, today we have a super special guest. We have uh, our good friend Joshua Egan, who is a actually one of the admins in Reasons for Jesus. Um, so welcome, Josh. It's good to have you, man. It's good to so, be here. I appreciate you letting me come on. Definitely, definitely. So we're going to be uh, covering one primary topic. We're going to have a fantastic testimony, uh, and then we're going to have a little bit of an interview, uh, all regarding uh, the primary subject of homosexuality, uh, which is a typical hot-button topic in the Christian community, one that has not always been handled very well. I would say actually pretty poorly. And uh, as far as, for me, it seems like something that has been uh, more of that hot button topic for about the past 20 years, and it keeps uh, coming about, but at a much uh, greater rate than what it has in the past. Um, it's definitely not an issue that's going away anytime no, soon. No, no, yeah. definitely not. So the question that uh, we're posing is, you know, uh, how do we approach this uh, from a biblical worldview? Uh, really, what is our worldview? What is a worldview? How does that impact the way that uh, uh, we view this uh, particular issue? And then um, also, uh, how do we show as far as God's love and compassion? And how do we relate as far as to the homosexual, the LGBT uh, community in general? So Dave's going to be covering... Um, uh, a little bit of what the worldview is, what our worldview is, what that means, and how it impacts things, and then we'll have a great testimony, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, you know, Joshua is the perfect dude for this. Uh, he's somebody who's, I mean, he'll share his testimony in a few minutes, but he's somebody who's lived uh, in the homosexual uh, community for quite some time, and he actually now runs a ministry um, just reaching people in that community, you know, with the love of Christ and with the gospel. So, so this is going to be awesome. So uh, like John said, I'm just going to talk for just a couple minutes here kind of on the Christian worldview, because that is really just such a foundational issue. Worldviews are one of those things that, you know, everybody has a worldview, but most people don't really ever consider theirs or think about it. Um, but it's one of those things that's that's necessary in understanding where we are, how we perceive the world. Um you know, it, it's kind of necessary just to put that out there, you know, before even talking to, you know, non-believers, you know, even even believers. I mean, there's there's plenty of Christians out there professing Christians who don't legitimately have a biblical worldview. So um, cool. Um, all right. So so the first question that we need to ask kind of when looking at a Christian worldview is is simply what what lens are we looking through? Um, what is our source of truth? Um, you know, what's our place in the universe? What are our duties? Um, these are all worldview questions that uh, how we answer them is going to determine how we perceive everything, not just homosexuality, not even just just sexual issues, but but everything like all of life. Um, you know, we, we act and we think in accordance with our worldview uh, when it comes to our source of truth or the, the philosophical term would be kind of our theory of knowledge or, or epistemology. Um, you know, we recognize as believers that all truth is ultimately God's truth um, and that God is the foundation for all truth. Um, God has made himself known to us. Uh, he's done that in creation. He's done that internally in our, our hearts and our consciences. Um, and then, you know, most perfectly, uh, he's revealed himself to us 
in scripture and it's in scripture that we're going to find answers to the rest of these questions you know again what is our place what is our duty that sort of thing um you know when we look to who we are as people you know scripture teaches us that we are god's creations and not only that we're kind of god's prized creation um we are uh, created by god in his image we're to be image bearers or, or like mirrors of god's uh, moral nature um, you know, and it's based on our status as image bearers of God that we ultimately have our worth, value, and dignity. Um, I'd, I'd actually argue that without this uh, this foundation, there isn't a solid basis for human worth, human value, human dignity, that sort of thing. Um, you know, if we're just the product of time and chance, um, you know, formed by unguided, you know, evolutionary process, then we really don't have any intrinsic worth. We really don't have any intrinsic purpose in life. Um, you know, when we recognize that God is our creator, you know, he is alone, the one who defines us. Um, you know, and this is this is very contrary to sort of the secular humanist worldview um, that would say that, you know, each of us has the right to self-definition and, um, you know, just kind of be who we we feel like being, um, you know, and and similarly to kind of keep on track with the biblical worldview, you know, when we look at ultimately what's wrong with the world, um, you know, we're going to primarily look back onto Genesis chapter three, where it talks about the fall of man, um, you know, and man goes from being in a right relationship with God to a relationship of hostility and enmity and rebellion against God. Um, you know, since the fall, we're born, um, you know, we're sinners by nature, by choice, sinning comes naturally to us. Um, and it's ultimately through the work of Christ that we're, we're then reconciled. Um, to God through uh, through faith. Um, and it's the person and work of Christ that brings us into right relationship with God. You know, and, and obviously this is going to be incredibly different than the secular humanist worldview, um, you know, that, that really says that we're, we're basically good. We just need more education or more, you know, government funding, you know, kind of whatever, uh, whatever the case is. But, you know, that secular worldview is also going to say that we're the center, uh, you know, of the universe, basically, we have the right to do whatever we think will make us happy. Um, you know, we don't owe anything to God. And, and, and so obviously, there's going to be this, there's going to be this conflict between these two worldviews, between a biblical worldview and a secular worldview. Um, but again, what our worldview is, is going to then determine, um, you know, how we look at, you know, homosexuality or, or any other issue. Um, you know, for example, you know, when you get to the parts in the Bible that talks about how, you know, like in Judges, it'll say, you know, and men did whatever was right in their own eyes, you know, that's not a good thing. Um, you know, from, from a secular worldview, they pretty people would pretty much say, well, that's fine. You know, just you do you just don't hurt anybody, or, you know, whatever. Um, but again, that's that's not really a, a good thing. That's not really a biblical um, type thing. Yet it's very much a, a growing concept in, you know, sort of Western postmodern culture. Um, so again, as, as Christians, our worldview starts with God, starts with God's revelation, um, you know, and, and really they're kind of bridging into the topic. We have to ask, you know, what does the Bible actually teach about homosexuality? You know, we're not asking, uh, you know, how do I feel about this or how can I intellectually ra rationalize this or what do the studies show? You know, ultimately we're asking the question of what is, what does the Bible say and kind of going from there. So, um, so, John, if you want to give kind of a quick breakdown of just kind of what what is, you know, maybe a bird's eye view of just what does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? Because there's some kind of debate, you know, it's like you, you kind of see some like, you know, like the Steven Anderson type guys that are just up there, you know, preaching, you know, God hates you and, you know, and whatever. Yeah. And then on the other side, you have people saying, you know, like books like uh, God and the Gay Christian, mm -hmm. you know, talking about, you know, God actually made you that way. And, you know, these texts are kind of being misinterpreted, but kind of just give us a, a quick bird's eye view of um yeah, what does yeah, the Bible definitely. Say? Well, like you said, there's the there's the Stephen Anderson type that immediately go to Leviticus 18:22, and so when we look at that, if we flip right over, 
Uh, that's the verse that says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman as it is an abomination. Uh, but when you're looking at that in context, it's actually giving several other types of sexual immorality uh, type of uh, positions that uh, we fall under. So, uh, for example, it says you shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. This would also co uh, come in within that umbrella of sexual immorality. And the, when we get into the New Testament, we see a Greek term, uh, porneia, and that is, once again, it's that umbrella term, which is referring to sexual immorality. So a lot of times when we see, uh, like in Romans uh, 1, 24 through 26, when it's talking about men being given over to their sexual desires, um, women doing things that were unnatural, um, that once again, as far as that sexual morality umbrella, could be, you know, bestiality. It could be several different things that kind of fall under that general sexual immorality clause. In fact, when we look in Corinthians, Corinthians is one of the ones where we see a church that had a lot of issues going on. And at the beginning of chapter five, it says, it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. So right there, we see a man having his father's wife, a man and a woman, but it's something that the pagans didn't even practice. So it doesn't set aside as far as homosexuality be the uh, end all be all of the worst type of sin. We see something that even the pagans didn't practice in chapter five. Um, and that's, that's something to consider because so many people try to uh, pigeonhole homosexuality as being such a far step above everything else. And in fact, when you go back uh, to Leviticus, later on, uh, it talks about all of these different types, that, that, that whole umbrella of all those different types of sexual and moral sins as being abominations, not just as far as uh, the uh, homosexuality. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at it as, as being an uh, umbrella term, we see that uh, sexual immorality is just a perversion of what God originally intended mm -hmm. um, as far as uh, when we're looking uh, at when we come to Christ, it's that our bodies are not our own. And that's really emphasized in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Uh, it says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. So me being um, a married man, uh, I might see a beautiful woman. Uh, my, my flesh, my desire is even contrary as far as to what the spirit is telling me to do. So for me to lust after the woman is just as bad as, you know, uh, of the homosexual that would basically lust after a man. It's contrary as far as to what the original intent was for. Mm -hmm. so. so, so yeah. So I think, you know, when we, when we look at homosexuality, cause yeah, there, there really only are, you know, a handful of times that it's explicitly called out more often than not. Yeah. yeah it's just kind of put under this blanket term that includes, you know, sex outside of marriage, um, you know, lust for someone that you're not married to this sort of thing. So it's, it's all this blanket term. So that's, that's not at all to say, okay, this is fine, no. but it's, but it's to knock it off the pedestal that a lot of times people want to put it on and say, oh, this is some big separate, especially heinous, whatever. And it's like, um, you know, really more often than not, it gets, it gets kind of wrapped up. Um, well, we're going to turn it over to Josh here in a sec. I real quick though, I do want to address, and I want to encourage you guys. Uh, I'm seeing there are comments here. I want to encourage you guys to comment, ask questions, all that good stuff. Um, somebody said, uh, in response to, I think what I said, they said, what sin comes naturally. Um, we are fearfully and wonderfully made sin is unnatural. Romans one. Um, yeah, definitely. Specifically what I'm talking about there is since the fall. Um, so since the fall, we see sin comes uh, naturally. God created us good and upright. Uh, Genesis one, then in Genesis three, you know, the world was plunged into sin, um, you know, and it, 
you know, Romans five specifically talks about that, how we all, we all fell under Adam. Um, we all sin, um, mm-hmm. again, just, just kind of on the, on the sin nature there. Um, but let me, uh, let me go ahead and, and really with that as a backdrop, I guess we'll, we'll kind of get into uh, Joshua's story there. Um, so dude, if you want to just, um, just really kind of share with us your, your own personal testimony on this. Sure. Well, I was raised in a pastor's home and, uh, I've been raised in church my whole life, <clears throat> but, uh, at a young age, I began to realize that I was different. Something was different about me and, uh, I couldn't pinpoint it right away. Uh, but as, as most of my friends began noticing, <clears throat> noticing the girls and, uh, noticing how pretty they are. And, uh, you know, that, that was very different. I, I didn't, Notice that I didn't have those same attractions. And uh, so it started to scare me. It worried me first. And uh, then it started to kind of scare me because I was like, what's what's wrong with me? And uh, some, something's wrong. And uh, <clears throat> I remember sometimes trying to talk to some of my friends uh, covertly, uh, trying to ask questions without them catching on to why I was asking, but just trying to figure out what is it you see in them? What, what is it that you're attracted to? Or, or even trying to figure out why I wasn't attracted to it. And, uh, so that was uh, early as like a preteen and, and get, you know, in the, around the puberty years. And so I, I started out being very confused and, and somewhat worried there as time progressed. I really started noticing that absence. I, I simply had no desire for women or girls whatsoever, never attracted to them. Um, you know, my parents would always tell me to, you know, turn away from, from this bad billboard or, or, you know, they try to change the commercials you know, real quick or whatever, when something bad would come on TV. And, and I never understood what the big deal was. Like it doesn't, didn't do anything for me. And so I, I started getting upset and then realizing based on, on what, uh, society says, uh, the prospect wasn't very good. Um, I started trying to find answers. Why, why am I different? Why do I not have a desire uh, for the opposite sex? And unfortunately, the church is not prepared with answers for that. Uh, the church, by and large, does not have an answer for why some people have no desire. And so I began looking for answers, and uh, Satan certainly had some answers ready in the world. And so, uh, you know, Hosea 4, 6, God says that my people are destroyed for their lack of knowledge. And in the absence of that knowledge, Satan's going to make sure he's got a counterfeit ready. You know, where the truth belongs, when we have the absence of that truth, Satan's got something ready for us. And the answer that I ended up finding was the world's answer. And uh, for a lot of my confusion and, and and, and really being worried about why I am the way I am, the world said, hey, those who don't have an attraction for women, you're gay. Well, what? You know, that, that doesn't quite comport, but that that's the answer. And sometime around then I had begun dabbling in pornography and, uh, I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's a scourge to any man, uh, any person really. And, uh, I began getting into pornography at that time and that began creating in me desires, sexual desires that I'd never had sexual appetites that I'd never had up until that time. And uh, prior to that time, I had desired closeness with men, you know, you know, just like every five year old boy does. Every five year old boy thinks that uh, girls have cooties, you know, girls are gross. And, uh, you know, that's natural. There's nothing wrong with that. They're not broken or messed up. That's normal. And, And those those young boys want closeness with the father figures in their lives or an uncle or an older brother, older cousins or or other boys their age. Uh, They desire that closeness. And I did, too. It was always like that until I began 
until I was introduced to the sexual aspect of things. And so in pornography, I began seeing a, a very intimate dis or a very powerful display of intimacy. It's a fraudulent one. It's completely manufactured. It, it's, it's ungodly, but it's a display of intimacy. And that's what I've been wanting. I, I crave closeness, intimacy with somebody. And, and there's all kinds of intimacy and we're created to, ha to have and desire closeness. And that's what I wanted. And so now I'm being offered a counterfeit version of that. And, and it began, I began developing an appetite for that. And, and I deviate from what God's plan was for my life. And so I began developing those same sex attractions uh, in, in the absence of desiring women. I now began desiring men, uh, which I had not previously done. And, and so from there, you know, sin is a slippery slope. Sin is always a slippery slope. Yeah. And so I began, you know, trying to ex figure out my place in this world and, and why I, I was the way I am. And it took me several years before I actually embraced the gay label. Uh, I was very, because of my upbringing, I was so scared of hurting my family, hurting my dad's ministry. Um, and I, I, I was in denial for a long time that, that anything was wrong. But in the back of my mind, I knew something's different, something's up. And so when I got the chance, I tried to move away from home. I moved out to another state uh, to go to college, and that allowed me a little bit more freedom to uh, to see that, you know, try this life, see, see what it's like to be who I thought I was at the time. And that life is empty. It, it's truly empty. There's, there's so much... Uh, so much jealousy in that world, so much drugs and alcohol and and so many things trying to fill the void in the lives. It's truly empty. There's there's some fun. There's some partying. There's some happy times, but it's truly empty. And and so many people turn to the drugs and alcohol for that. And, and it was such an empty life trying to, to find purpose and meaning among that. And it, it really led me to to question everything in life, you know, if if God does not make anyone gay, then why why have I been this way for as long as I can remember? And and if I'm not meant to be like this, then where are the answers in, in the church? Why why does the church have no answers for me? And and I feared coming out to anyone or coming out uh, coming over to someone and 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 confiding in them in the church because I've seen how how churches have treated so many people. They they often ostracize them, kick them out, excommunicate them. I have nothing to do with them. I've seen where families have practically disowned them, and uh, I, I feared that. I feared that reaction, and so I just kept quiet. I kept it to myself, and. Um, it began just I, I bottled it up and 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 tucked it away and just tried to keep it to myself for as long as I could. And, and I, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I really couldn't take it. And so I really felt like I could either go back to my family and live a lie, pretend like I was uh, different than I am and, and live a lie. Or I could try to just stay out and proud and, and, and shun my faith, reject all that and live this lifestyle that the world tells me I should live. And I didn't like either prospect. And so ultimately, I chose to attempt suicide. I figured it was better to to just end it all in the struggle, in the turmoil. Don't have to worry about the pain. I don't have to worry about disappointing my family. Uh, suicide seemed to be the best option. And I attempted suicide twice. And uh, thankfully, God intervened both times. And uh, and, and someone he, he brought someone into my life in those moments that was able to minister to me and help me in that moment to, to keep me going. 
And so I eventually moved back home with my family. And so my family tried to help me as best they could. And uh, when I when I first opened up to my family and told them everything that had been going on at this point, they had known nothing. And uh, when I opened up to my parents, they it it, it devastated them. It, it really it shocked them. They had no they had no clue up until that point. Uh, I had never let on that I was struggling with anything. Uh, they knew I'd kind of backslid in some, but they didn't know to what extent. And so I remember my dad cried when I first started when I first told him. Uh, but the first words that he said to me after that were, "Son, I still love you." Hmm. And that was powerful. I needed that in that moment. And uh, I went, you know, I, I met with my dad one on one first and then we went to the house and uh, then I told my mom all of this. My mom began weeping. I, I think my mom weeped for probably about three weeks um, and, and it just it broke her heart. She didn't know how to she she finally realized that her son's hurting and she didn't know how to help. And she knew you realized that she came close to losing her son. Yeah. And so there's just all this weight dropped on them so suddenly and and they're bewildered and they don't know what to do but they just know they want to help their son and so we began praying we began fasting and um, let, me, let me pause you right there for just a sec um before you get too far from it but you're talking about um you know just like suicide attempts and stuff like that and like that's obviously something that statistically that is incredibly common um yes. with with people struggling with that in that lifestyle that sort of thing um and one of the things that we hear a lot is that um, that, that depression and that sort of thing is really caused by um, sort of society's rejection of the individual for, um, you know, them self-identifying as gay or, or whatever with that. What what are your thoughts there? It doesn't sound like, at least from what you said, that that necessarily was a factor with you. But um, I don't know. Yeah, if you I, I really believe it does. It, it varies for different people. So someone who did not who was not raised in church. Uh, it, it can definitely depend on the societal factors around them. Uh, I know like in conservative communities, uh, especially in the deep South in the United States, um, the community, it just just the secular community at large is just very turned off to it, very standoffish to it. Um, and it can it can really treat them very poorly. Uh, just as society, like you said, as, as rejecting them uh, as people, not just rejecting the actions, but rejecting them as people. Right. There, there is a difference. And, and, and so these people are being rejected. And so that definitely plays, uh, has a large role uh, in, in that depression and, and the suicidal tendencies for, for those who are unbelievers, but especially for those who are in the church, uh, young people who are in the church there's an even greater pressure. Not only do you have that same societal pressure, but now you've got the church level as well. And I know many people don't mean it this way, but uh, a lot of churches really come across very hateful or, or very abrasive at the least, maybe not hateful, but very abrasive in this regard. And so it, it, there's judgment there. They, they know that they're going to be judged. They know that they're going to be uh, possibly treated differently or kicked out. And so, they're afraid to speak up. And, and for example, there was one church that uh, I I've been able to help. Uh, my ministry has been able to help. And uh, we went there for one person. There was one person that was struggling and they asked us to come and, and talk to them, help counsel them. We get there and we ask the pastor, is there anyone else in your church that's struggling? And he said, no, no, there's no one else in my church that's struggling. I would know. I've kind of got my thumb on this ministry. Uh, well, come to find out once we started counseling that one person, there was actually 12 others in the church that she knew about. And, um, you know, there was just such a culture in the church that they were too scared to come to their pastor about it. And their pastor is a good man. Their pastor is a great man of God. 
but it's just the way he had come across. He didn't intend to do that. And once he realized that's what was happening, he he was humble enough to say, hey, I was wrong in, in handling it that way. I want I want to be approachable for those who need help. But there's mm -hmm. a lot of pressure there, especially in churches, and it creates fear. And, and so many young people, especially those in the church, are often faced with three courses of action that I, I kind of alluded to earlier in my story. And the first action is either pretend to be normal, quote unquote, uh, so that everyone else is happy around you. And basically that that translates into living a lie. I, I just I'm just going to pretend to be what would make you happy. So you accept me and you don't reject me. And that and there's a lot of people who live like that. And I lived like that for a long time. I just tried to pretend like everything was great. I'd make comments about girls. Anytime someone would talk to me about it, I just go along with it. And just to, you know, I, I wanted to be accepted. And, and so ultimately it comes like I'm living a lie. The second option is to come out and be yourself. Just forget who, you know, what anyone thinks, just be yourself, you know, tough luck, you know, like it or lump it. And you risk losing family and friends in the process and you will. And so that translates into living alone, a very lonely life. And then the third option, if someone doesn't want to live a lie or live alone, they take the other way out. And, and that's often ending your life and you risk hurting your family and friends, but at least they'll be hurt that one last time and you're not going to shame them for the rest of your existence. You know, that's really kind of the perspectives that a lot of people have to face with. And, and someone may say that, man, those are really awful things. To, you know, that's a very dark way to look at it. That's the reality that a lot of people are facing. And so suicide often seems to be the easiest way out. And, and sometimes when you, when you see someone in the church who just, throws their hands up and says, I give up. And they leave the church and they just go live in the gay community out and proud. Some people are like, how could they do that? Well, you may not realize how, how much they struggled with what they felt was living a lie for so long, yeah. you know, and that really has an emotional toil on you and, and, and people just can't handle it anymore. And so that's the only other option they think there is. And, and so unfortunately those are not the only three options. We just, people just don't know it. And, and again, because the church isn't teaching on this, People are not told that there's hope. There's there is an answer. There's a purpose for the way you know for for the way God makes each and every person. Yeah. And so the church, the way the church treats those treats those who struggle, uh, and even the terminology that they use towards them sometimes it really creates an us versus them mentality, and it instills fear in people. And uh, and you know it, it will definitely lead to depression. Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Yeah. Very thorough answer to that one. That's great. Um, yeah. Continue. Or did we have another one right in there? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Go ahead and uh, continue with your story there where you left off there. So you just uh, you just come out to um, your parents and, and let them know what you've been struggling with and all that. And um, yeah, let your mom and dad know. I think that was right where yeah. you left off. Yeah. And uh, I remember there's a one night that my mom grabbed me by the lapels of my shirt and kind of held me against the front door of the house. And she was just crying and, and she begged me, she said, please promise me you won't do anything stupid referring to another suicide attempt. And, and she's, I mean, she's crying, begging me, don't, don't try this again. And, and I refused to promise. I didn't say anything um, because I had every intention of trying again. And it was just a very, it was a very emotionally raw time, a very, a very trying time in the family. And, and we didn't really have any answers. Uh, my parents wanted to help. They, they were so eager. They, they truly loved me. They wanted to help. They didn't want to kick me to the curb. They just didn't know how. And so they tried looking up all these different resources. And there's these different ex-gay ministries. And you've got reparative therapy. And you've got all these different things that my parents sent me all kinds of stuff. Read this. Do this. Try this. Let's go here. Let's listen to this. 
and and just trying anything and everything to quote unquote pray the gay away anything we can to kind of fix this and um unfortunately none of that worked at least not the way that we hoped and um it, it really created some tension uh, because I, I knew that I had been like this for as long as I could remember in, in terms of having no desire for women. I, I knew the, the sexual desires had come at a later time when I was introduced to the, the sexual things. But I had been like this without the desire for the opposite sex ever for as long as I can remember. I, and and so, so how did that happen? And, and so I, I, was, I was often very, very confused at times. I would get angry at times and eventually got bitter at God. God, why? Why would you do this to me? Because if God is sovereign and God controls all things, why would you do this to me, God? Uh, what did I do to deserve this? Or, or my family? Look at what my family has done. Look at how my family served you. Why would you let this happen to me? And I was very bitter at God. There were times that I would literally go out into the woods, drop to my knees, and and shake my fist up at the sky and just yell out, God, why? And just cry because I, I, I didn't understand and I was hurting so bad. And during this time, I really kind of begun growing distant from my family a little bit because they they were so eager to help, but they didn't know how to help. And I began resenting their efforts at that point. And so I would uh, often work late at night and try to avoid uh, avoid going home, having confrontations with them because I, I was really coming more and more to terms with the fact that there's no two ways about it. I'm just gay. That, that's, you know, I'll, I'll try to submit to Christ. I'll try to be celibate but I am who I am kind of thing. And, and my dad as a pastor. He's just, God doesn't make anyone gay. He doesn't create anyone gay. And, and so we were, we were having this struggle back and forth with, with what we believe the Bible to be saying versus what I believe to be experiencing. And how do I make my faith and my feelings make sense in one life? You know, yeah, it really and, does come out of your kind of source of truth there. You know, you have, yeah, you have really the does. word that's saying this is true, and then you have your feelings that are saying no, this is true, and those are colliding. And you know, yeah, yeah. And and it, it's it's very challenging, and we see how challenging it is when we look at how many people are leaving the church and and going out into the world now, and because they don't understand how how this works, and and so. My dad, you know, my dad stayed up for me one night. Stayed up late one night when I was working, and uh, when I got home, was standing in the kitchen waiting for me, and uh, that was unusual. He normally went to bed uh, and didn't wait for me at all, but he was standing there and he had a book in his hand and he slid it across the island to me and he said, "Hey, I want you to read this book." And uh, I, I took a look at the book and it was titled "Born That Way After All." And uh, I was like, I, I looked at my dad and uh, looked at the book title. I looked at my dad again and looked at the book and I was like, okay, who are you and what'd you do with my dad? You know, because my <laughs> dad's been arguing all this time, God doesn't make anyone gay. You're not born gay. You know, something happened, whatever. And now he's handing me this book called Born That Way After All. What in the world? You know? <laughs> and uh, so I, I thought it was something tricky. I thought it was some sort of trick, reparative therapy trick or something, you know, and <laughs> I had no interest in reading it. And so I threw it on my nightstand and, you know, forgot about it. And so a few days later, uh, I needed something to read. I, lo I love to read. And so I picked up the book and I finally began flipping through it. And within the first few chapters, man, it hooked me. I, I the author of that book was describing me. Of all people, he was describing me to a T and, and explaining from Scripture that God did this on purpose, that, that, that 
unnatural desires can be developed through through you know giving into temptation and doing things like that. Those, those unnatural desires can be developed and they need to be dealt with. But simply having no desire for the opposite sex, that's not a mistake. That's not a, a brokenness. That's a design. And God has a purpose in that. And and he began opening up from the scriptures how that uh, it's taught by Christ himself. It's understood throughout the Old Testament. It's taught by Christ himself. It's taught by his, by historic, you know, historical preachers all the way up from uh, Basilides, a disciple of Matthew. Uh, uh, Augustine taught it. John Calvin taught it. John Wesley taught it. Spurgeon taught it. Matthew Henry taught it. And, and this is understood throughout history, but it suddenly disappears. And churches no longer teach this, even though it's taught by all these other preachers. We no longer teach this. And this book is share, uh, opening up this whole world to me that, hey, you have purpose. You're not broken. You're not messed up. You're not abominable before God. Your sins are an abomination. Your actions, your choice to disobey and rebel against God, that's abominable. But who you are as a person, you're not messed up. God did not make a mistake. He knows what he was doing. And for the first time, a, a a purpose was breathed into my life. I, I had a newfound purpose. I finally understood why I was the way I was, and, and and I understood my purpose in life. And so I was able to go out back into the woods where I had often gone and shaken my fist in God's face, and I was finally able to go out there and drop to my knees and say, God, thank you. Not only thank you for for finally giving me an answer after praying for so long, but thank you for what you did. Thank you for making me the way that I am, because now that I understand, I value that. And and so that it, it was a complete paradigm shift mm. and, and seeing how and, and it, it completely reconciled my family, too, because we finally understood how what Scripture teaches about this being a sin and, and this being unnatural desires. We finally understood how that fits with what I was experiencing and scripture is true and feelings are not the best indicator, you know, but we finally understood and, and a lot, all that tension finally dissolved and, and, and that tension in my faith resolved. And I was finally able to be reconciled fully and understand my position in the kingdom and, 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 and relation with the father. That's awesome. That's awesome. So if you don't mind, what were some of those texts? You mentioned that um, this book is kind of breaking down a few different texts from the Bible. You talked about Jesus kind of mentioning um, mm -hmm. some of these specific things. So what what were maybe one or two of those texts that really kind of blew that open for you? Well, the the primary, the, the book is actually titled Born That Way After All, based on what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 19. In okay. Matthew 19, verse 11, Jesus is talking to his disciples uh, about marriage. And um, he he's describing God's view of marriage and divorce and, and things of that nature. And the disciples tell him and say, whoa, Lord, um, this is a hard saying. You know, what, what you're teaching is very difficult. And Peter speaks up and says, well, it would just be better not even to marry at all. And, and it's there that Jesus interjects and says, uh, all men cannot receive this saying except those to whom it is given. Okay, so Jesus is saying this is not for everybody, but for those for whom it's meant, you know, listen up. And then Jesus says there, he says, for there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb. And there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, receive it, let him receive it. 
And, and so many times we just gloss over these passages. I was actually listening to a preacher the other day. He's been preaching through the book of Matthew. He got to Matthew 19. He preached all the way up to verse 10, and then he jumped on to verse 13 and 14. He, he really didn't have <laughs> sure. anything to say about 11 and 12. He didn't know what to do with that. And, and so uh, in this book, it goes through historically. And again, it cites all the way back to Basilides and, and Jesus himself, but Basilides all the way through you know, John Wesley, Spurgeon and others and Matthew Henry, where they, they explain the word eunuch is one who has no desire. They are known as nurturers and guardians. That's what they were known for being so good at nurturing and guarding. Uh, but they have no desire for the opposite sex. They do well not to marry. And, and in Matthew 19, uh, when Jesus says that there are some eunuchs so born from the womb, some eunuchs that were made that way by man, and some who choose that for themselves, those are actually three different Greek words for eunuch. They're, they're all translated eunuch in English, but it's three separate Greek words, three different kinds. In American culture, we only understand one, and that's the man who's been castrated. We know that, okay, well, if a man is castrated, then he's a eunuch. And we think that the loss of a body part is what eunuchism is. And that's not. A eunuch, uh, the, the, the basis of a eunuch is simply one who has no desire for opposite sex, for, for, for that, that intimacy with the opposite sex, for marriage. And, and someone who has no desire, that's a eunuch. And some eunuchs are that way from birth. And there's a specific Greek word for those who have no desire from birth. However, some people have a body part that's removed. And when that body part's removed, they lose all desire. Now having no desire, that's a eunuch. And then there are some who have no desire for marriage simply because they, they want to pursue the kingdom. Their, their focus on the kingdom is so um, so dedicated that marriage is nowhere on their radar. And that's, that's one who has no desire for marriage by choice. And so Jesus is describing all three of these. And, and there are some so born from their mother's womb. And so that's where the title born that way after all comes from. It says no one is born gay. No one is born with a deviated sexual desire. No one is born uh, into deviation or, or sexual perversion, but there are those who are born not to have an attraction to the opposite sex. And, and in that absence, Satan uses that to, to beguile us, to, to lead us astray. He'll use anything, any void in our life. You know, you find, Somebody that has an absent father figure, Satan's going to take advantage of that void and lead them off in, into sin somehow. Right. Or right. one know, way or another, doesn't matter which way he's going, it's he's gonna, you know, he's gonna find a purpose for it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and so that this is a void that we're not taught about this. I I was never taught that some people are born without a desire. That I, I was I never knew that was a thing. And so when I began to realize I have no desire. I'm freaking out. I, I'm I'm missing this truth in my life and, and freaking out because it because of it. And Satan used that lack of knowledge to destroy me. And that's exactly what Hosea 4 6 talks about. And and thankfully God can restore anything that's been destroyed. Um, but that lack of knowledge destroyed me. And so in the absence of that truth, imagine and scripture talks about uh truth being like a tree. And uh, imagine this tree has been uprooted and, and taken off somewhere. You're left with a hole in the ground. A, a hole is not a something. It's a nothing. It, it, it's, it's, it's a real thing. It's very real. <clears throat> but you can't pick up a hole and put it in your pocket. You know, it, it, so it, it's a void. It's very real, but it's a nothingness. It's an emptiness. And, and it's meant to be filled. We're not meant to have voids in our lives. The truth is meant to be there. 
But in the absence of that truth, we have a void there. And so we're going to try to fill that void with anything we can. And the only thing we have is trash. So we'll, it'll be promiscuity. It'll be drugs or it'll be alcohol or it'll be you know, this relationship, that relationship, or it'll be money or it'll be just traveling or it'll be whatever we try to do to, to distract ourselves from, from this emptiness that we have. And with all this trash in our lives, it's so it's, it's unfulfilling. It, it's not, it's not satisfying because it's junk, you know, and, and they're pleasurable for a time. You know, you, you can eat Twinkies all the time because they taste great. But after a while of all that junk, it's going to start making you sick. It's going to start hurting your health and you may enjoy it for a time, but it's ultimately destroying your body. And that's what this trash in the void does. But then we have preachers that come along and just start attacking the trash and 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 preaching against all the trash. And hey, it is trash. It it is sin. You know, bless God, it's trash. Let's call it what it is and, and get the sin out of our lives. But if we don't also give them the truth that belongs there, then all we're doing is removing the trash for them to put different trash in. Mm. And, and what does Jesus say about the man who whose heart was full of full of devils? He finally cleaned it all out, swept it out, but right. left it empty. Bible says that what comes again is seven times worse. And so we we can't just empty out the trash. We can't just preach against trash and then leave the void there. We've got to give them the truth. We've got to put the truth back where it belongs. Once you put that tree back in its place, there's no longer a void for all that trash to exist. That's how someone can walk in freedom from all of that trash by having the truth of God. That's awesome. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Um, cool. So now you mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago, you were talking about the um, like the, the gay conversion therapy or the, the restorative therapy. So that's, I, I guess, I don't know a ton about that. From what I've heard, I, I guess I don't have a primarily high view of that. It seems like that is more just almost like negative reinforcement mm -hmm. and probably just kind of what you're talking about. Would, would that be correct? Where it's just kind of attacking the trash, but it's not actually replacing it with, with anything solid. Well, uh, yeah, you're. I think you're right to have a low view of it. Uh, I'm not a fan <laughs> of this type of therapy. Uh, in a nutshell, and at the risk of oversimplifying, I'm not trying to oversimplify, but but at the risk of that, I, I'll say this: reparative therapy basically attempts to repair you of your brokenness. And and on the surface, that sounds good. We're, we're all broken in some way, right? You know, and so that it, it it seems to make sense. But some varieties of this reparative therapy are very inhumane, uh, while others are psychologically questionable. There, there's like electroshock therapy, for example. Uh, they legitimately use electricity to try to cure your gayness. You know, uh, then there's all kinds of psychological things that can be used at times. It just it'll it'll mess with people. Um, and and also another th problem I have with it is it all of it seems to treat marriage as though that's the ultimate cure that marriage is the cure for all these people. And as we know from scripture, what I was just talking about, not everyone's designed to get married. There are those who have, have no desire for the opposite sex so that they'll remain faithfully unmarried. And, and again, it's not for everyone. It is a calling. It's a gift to certain people. And so to treat marriage as the ultimate cure for everybody, that's the wrong objective. That That's not taking into account God's plan for the individual's life. It's yeah. just kind of giving a blanket, you know, broad stroke. And and it tends to ignore the fact that God created some people to remain unmarried. And so there are people who say that they've been helped by reparative therapy. Uh, but I've in my experience, those are few and far between. And okay. it often depends on what their goals were and how they define help. So, I, you know, I, I know many people who've been very harmed by reparative therapy and uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of it at all. OK, gotcha. 
Gotcha. Thank you. Um, cool. So, and then, okay. So you, you got this, this book, it really kind of just blew up, you know, your, your void and, and really just finding God's design purpose for you and for, um, just people with, um, you know, really the gift that you've been given as opposed to this just being a curse or something like that really kind of rocked you. And then now it's the guy that wrote this this book that you um, that you mentioned now. It's his ministry that you're actually kind of running now. Is that is yes. that correct? Yes, that's okay. correct. Yeah. So after I read his book, uh, I, I shot an email to them, just the generic ministry email and said, this book has changed my whole world. And I said, I, I want to help get this message out. I mean, it, it it's it's truly saved my life. I would have attempted suicide again. I just I couldn't put up with this. This has turned my world around. I want to help other people. And so um, it wasn't immediate, but God found, later opened the door for me to to come and, and work with this ministry. And, uh, you know, I've had the privilege of seeing hundreds of people come out of the gay community since then mm-hmm. and, and pursue Christ. And it's, it's just been fantastic. I love it. That's awesome, man. Praise God. Um, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, cool. So what are some, if you could give maybe just a few different pointers of how, the, and I mean, I think obviously just people hearing your testimony, you know, checking out this information, you know, digging into that scripture is going to help. But what are some, maybe some specific pointers of how the church can do a better job at loving uh, the gay community? Uh, yeah. One, there, there's three things that I like to tell people. Um the first is don't tip don't tiptoe around sin.